0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker, Goldman Sachs. So before we get started today, I just wanted to ask a quick favor of you and that if you are enjoying the show, I would greatly appreciate if you could take two seconds to leave a rating and review. And in return, I promise you that this podcast will never, ever have ads that you'll have to skip through. But getting back to the podcast, we've spoken at length about the beauty of network effects in a marketplace business model. Now, what we haven't spent so much time on is how you get those network effects going. Specifically, what are the key levers and metrics one should think about in order to grow liquidity on both the demand and supply side of a marketplace? So that is why I am very excited to announce Leah Sullivan, the former CEO and founder of TaskRabbit as today's podcast guest. Given TaskRabbit's positioning as the pioneering gig site, I figured Leah would be the perfect person to talk to about the metrics that drive both sides of a marketplace. So in today's episode, Leah and I dive deep into a few specific case studies of how TaskRabbit drove step-function improvements in both their demand and supply-side KPIs. We also chat about her reflections on TaskRabbit's exit to IKEA. And lastly, Leah and I discuss what she looks for in startups now that she's investing full-time as a general partner at Fuel Capital. So why don't we get started? Hey Leah, thanks for joining the podcast.
1: Hey John, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so why don't we start with a little bit on your background and how you came to start TaskRabbit.
1: Okay, so my background is engineering. I was a software engineer at IBM for eight years and I had this idea for TaskRabbit in February of 2008. I remember it was February because it was cold and snowing and I lived in Boston at the time. It was one of those awful winters. And I realized I was out of dog food. And at the time, I had this 100-pound yellow lab named Kobe, who I kept very well fed. And I thought, there's got to be a good way to get this dog food. I'd call the cab to pick me up, take me across town to meet friends for dinner. This was such a simple problem. Why wasn't there a simple solution? But in 2008, many of the technologies that we take for granted today were very nascent. So the iPhone had just come out four months earlier. There was no app store. No one was using location-based services. Facebook was just breaking out of the college scene and becoming more mainstream. And so as an engineer, I'm so passionate about technology. I became really passionate about these emerging technologies. And so that was the moment of inspiration that I had the idea for TaskRabbit. I ended up quitting my job at IBM four months later. I built the first version of the site because that's what I knew how to do and got it launched in the Boston area. And then it kind of snowballed from there.
0: That's wonderful. And as you think about geographic expansions within marketplaces, could you share any lessons learned when it comes to scaling an entirely new marketplace in an entirely new city, let's say going from Boston initially to New York?
1: Yeah, I mean, such a great question because marketplaces, I think, are very specific types of beasts, right? And you have to be able to kind of tame both sides of the equation. There's supply, there's demand, People sometimes ask me, oh, it must be a chicken and the egg problem. Which do you start with? Do you start with supply? Do you start with demand? And it's actually, there's no chicken and there's no egg. Like You always have to start with supply. So one thing I learned with a marketplace business is you have to pick a side from the very beginning and you have to really focus on building up that side of the marketplace first so that in our case, it was supply so that we could start layering on demand. And so what we learned very early on is that We had a really high quality supply base, and we really set expectations on the supply side that, hey, listen, you're not going to have a ton of work to start because we're ramping up demand very slowly in each new market that we go into. But we had a high quality group of really engaged users. Then that was what really provided an optimal experience to start a city, and so we did have this city by city rollout approach. And you know, there are lots of debates in the company over time of. Should we go broad and just open everywhere or should we really narrow and focus in and go city by city? And I'm so glad that we kind of stuck to our playbook of going city by city because of the question around quality. If we had just opened everywhere and if it had been sort of a broader approach... People wouldn't have been matched. They would have bad experiences. The whole company would have fallen apart. And so it took a lot of patience and a lot of discipline to build the marketplace in that way. And not just by myself and the team, but also by our investors who are investing in TaskRabbit. Marketplaces take a long, 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 really long time to develop, right? And so as a marketplace investor, you have to be really playing that long game and have a lot of patience and be okay with waiting for those network effects to kick in.
0: And on the supply side, what were the key KPIs you were tracking?
1: So on the supply side, we learned you know, fairly quickly through some data science and through some algorithms that there was an optimal ratio of supply to demand. And not just you know, by the sheer broad numbers. We really looked at supply versus demand by category. So by skill set, are you a handyman or are you a housekeeper or are you a really good errand runner? We broke it down by zip code. So not even like just in Boston or New York or you know SF Bay it was by zip code, by neighborhood, and then by time of day and availability. And so we had this huge matrix of how we matched supply and demand. And we had this optimal ratio that there would be five taskers for every single client that came on the platform who wanted a certain job done at a very specific time in a very specific zip code, right? So that was one of the like, unit economics that we measured very closely that was a, a strong indicator of quality of experience and of matching. And matching was a really key KPI. How many matches could we make on the platform? Because it really didn't matter how many tasks were posted on the platform because if they weren't being matched, then there's no money there. And also people are having bad experiences. So what's the point in in actually, you know, counting those as wins. So we really went another layer deep and we counted matches and we counted connections. You know, I'd say the other side on the supply after people are matched is really focusing on how do you uh, measure the quality of experience? And particularly when there's an offline experience involved, it's hard to measure quality. Some of it is subjective. And so you know built-in ways of measuring quality things like response times responsiveness how soon did a tasker engage in a chat with a user that booked on the platform we finally got to a policy where it was like okay you know the chat has to be initiated within 30 minutes of a match being made otherwise the client feels like oh this person's not really there And so if you were a tasker that could respond even faster than that, then you earned sort of this higher quality and higher ranking in the system. And we knew that you'd probably be a little bit more of a stickier, higher engaged and higher quality user. And then we had all the things around ratings and reviews. And those are post-job. I mean, the hard part was really determining for a tasker that came into the supply network without a track record to look at, how do you know that person is going to provide a great first experience on their first job? And so, you know, there are lots of things we did leading up in the application process as well that would measure quality. And we had quality KPIs as well that we looked at very closely.
0: That's really helpful. And I'm now putting myself in the consumer's shoes, having been a TaskRabbit customer myself a few times with my IKEA furniture. And I'm specifically thinking about a move I made from the Upper West Side down to Fidei where I remember the specific tasker. And I think the reason why I just remember that is because of the response time metric, because I think I picked that tasker because of their two-minute average response time. So
1: that that poor person
0: is attached to their phone all the time, but I had great service, right?
1: (laughs) That's right, right.
0: So one thing I think about with being a consumer is that I'm always really lazy when it comes to leaving a rating and a review. And of course, there's some average percentage of users who actually do leave a review. But just given how critical reviews are for feedback, yes. were there any specific methods you use to encourage more reviews from the demand side?
1: Yeah. One of the things we learned is, you know, just asking, we tried all kinds of different ratings and reviews structures. We tried stars. We tried thumbs up, thumbs down. We tried, you know, open-ended reviews. And what we really started to hone in on is, one- as you said, you know, clients are busy. That's why they're using the service, right? So they don't have a lot of time to leave a rating or review. And the thumbs up and thumbs down is kind of too ambiguous because maybe they did like a mediocre job or maybe, you know, it was mostly good, but not perfect. And so, you know, the star system we modeled from eBay and back in 2008, eBay was the marketplace model, right? I mean, it was a completely different time. But the problem with that is it's like, you know, there's the story that like, if you have a 4.8 rating on eBay, like you're actually a really bad seller because it's like everything is obfuscated over time. And so one of the things we learned is that what are the metrics that determine a quality experience and then ask the client specifically about that. So was the tasker on time? Did they do the job? Well, were they friendly? Did they, you know, take their shoes off when they entered your home. And so we just would ask really short, specific questions that we would then take in to the back end and use in our algorithms to determine what the quality of experience that Tasker had been performing so it was kind of a combination of very specific questions to the client that were short one-off things that they could just kind of click with one button and then we took that and we found patterns in the data science that indicated that a tasker would be a higher quality a more engaged experienced user determined by these certain things
0: that actually makes me think about my last airbnb experience where i think when they first started it was just a broad five-star rating But the last time I stayed in an Airbnb, there were all sorts of breakouts for locations and cleanliness and hospitality. So then on the demand side, I think a lot of founders struggle with sustainable customer acquisition with marketplaces because they're so used to easy VC money that allows them to say, you know, hey, here's $20 if you join my marketplace. So as you think about repeat purchases of extending the lifetime value of your customers, what were some initiatives that you led that helped drive growth there?
1: Well, I think you've kind of honed in on one of the really key metrics about a marketplace is really around cohorts and repeat usage. And the health of the marketplace is really determined not only by supply and quality, but by the client side and whether or not they're coming back. And so I think for us, we had a philosophy around how often we believed someone should be able to post on the platform. And then we had assumptions in our business model that was like, oh, if we could get someone to post you know, 0.8% more times in a given month. Like that was the biggest lever in the entire business model were those cohorts. And so we did a lot of work around that over time. You know, we were never one to discount greatly. You know, from time to time, we would try different things. If we were testing particularly and we wanted to drive a lot of traffic, we wanted to test a certain thing on the site. But I think because my background is engineering and I am very analytical, the union economics were really important to me. And I wasn't comfortable operating in a way where I felt like the marketplace was upside down. And so every single transaction had to be profitable, had to be making money. And for better or worse, that meant that some categories, things like deliveries, which were not profitable as a single transaction. I don't
0: know if they still are right now, but we'll see.
1: <laughs> right? I mean, that's the question. Yeah. You have to be really, really, really good at batching a lot of things together at once to make that work. And that's just not where we decided to focus, right? And so we cut off that whole portion of the business and just said, like, it'll happen. People can pay for deliveries, but they're going to be super expensive and it's not something we're focused on. So we made a lot of choices around, even though deliveries... I mean, maybe they're high repeat usage, but not high enough for the cohorts to really drive the overall business. So we looked at things. What are other categories that are high repeat usage? Things like house cleaning, things like handyman services. You know, we looked at when people might have life events, if they're moving or getting married or having a new baby. There are things associated and services that are associated with those life events that happen around the home that we could then drive repeat usage and users coming back again and again. So it was a huge area of focus. It was the number one lever in the entire business model. And so when I look at investing in marketplace businesses, you know, one of the things that I'm really focused on are What are the cohorts telling you over time? How sticky are they? And how can you, you know, if you change the repeat usage by like five basis points, like how does that affect the overall business model? And I think, you know, having that sort of analytical mindset around a marketplace business helps bring it to profitability faster.
0: Yeah. I really like the broad platform that TaskRabbit offers in the sense that if you have some sort of verticalized marketplace, let's say wedding planning is the first thing that comes to mind. I would Did hope you say least, wedding planning? Yeah, that was The, the first, first
1: thing that comes I, to mind, are you getting married soon? <laughs> I,
0: I'm not. <laughs> but I was just thinking about something that has hopefully only one time in your life, right? I
1: see. So I see.
0: in terms of extending the LTV, maybe yeah. even something like candy, right? Which I think struggled eventually in an exit. But even then it was only when you needed house cleaning, which is still relatively regular. But I think there's a real ability for a broader platform that you can do your, hand, uh, your cleaning, right? But then at the same time, like maybe I need... Like a photographer for my wedding, and so I, the I really problem,
1: like that. right, with these high usage categories. On the flip side, is that there's a lot of gray market. So if you find someone that you love, that's a house cleaner, yeah. like you're more apt to take them off the site. And so for us, we had to focus on a broad range of categories, which actually helps sort of subsidize the gray market that's gonna happen in any marketplace business. And you know, of course you need to create enough value on the platform for people to wanna stay and continue to book that same house cleaner on the same platform, right? But um, you have to make it super, super simple for them. But having a more diverse set of categories that we're able to offer, I think also gave us a little bit more flexibility in the model.
0: That's great. I love highlighting the gray market there. I actually had Stefan Casriel, who runs Upwork now, talk about what he calls this concept, which is circumvention. And you really have to create such a value proposition, especially around trust and safety, yep. in order for someone to not you know, poach someone and go offline and say, hey, just text me and we'll do this one off and be cheaper. Right. So then with that, As I think about my personal experience using TaskRabbit, I mentioned Ikea Furniture, which parlays well into this question, which is exiting to Ikea, right? And oftentimes, although I don't like this to be the goal, an exit is eventually some sort of goal for business. And that's my job as an investor is to think about it. It is when you
1: take venture money. It is, right? (laughs) Yeah. And
0: so as you think about the exit to Ikea as one of the key shareholders at the time, what were some lessons learned there that you'd like to pass on?
1: You know, the acquisition to IKEA was born first out of a partnership. And so I think one of the things I learned was that having already established a valued relationship, showing the value we showed, you know, in their London store that we were able to increase revenue and drive more sales if they had taskers in the store actually offering the assembly of furniture. And so, you know, that's really how the conversation got started. And then of course we talked to other potential buyers at the time as well, but they were more cold start conversations. Right? And so I think one of the things I learned, you know, people would always tell me companies aren't bought, they're sold or the other way around. And it was like, I didn't really understand that until I was actually in the process. Right. And I had, Ikea, who really understood our value add and our value proposition, we also had a lot of shared values as two companies that would be coming together. You know, they have a lot of values around sustainability. They're very mission driven. And TaskRabbit, you know, had a strong mission and values as well around creating sustainable work for people and flexibility in their lives. And so, you know, having those shared values overlap also helped as well. But those other cold start conversations where you're like, oh, we have this interesting offer from Ikea. Like, what do you think? It's just so much harder, you know, to sell a company like that without first showing that value through a partnership. So I think that was the first learning is being able to do something that's a little more organic. If you can, I think helps get you the best partner at the table.
0: That's great. And when I think about synergies, which is such a nebulous concept, it's really nice that IKEA had a tangible case study of what synergies actually are, or else I feel like when the bankers come in or the investors come in and model quote unquote synergies, it's all just kind of guesswork. But you had, a, you had very tangible evidence of, as to why the partnership could work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, to that point, you're an ex banker, you brought up bankers. (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure I would have like done the whole banker process again. It was kind of brutal and it kind of made everything more complicated. Yeah. And so, and in the end it was the relationship that we had already created with Ikea that made the most sense.
0: And you feel like not having the banker there, would you still have maximized your value to the last dollar?
1: I mean, a hundred percent because we were the ones that actually maximized it <laughs> in the end. Yeah. yeah, just based on the process, right? So I think that made it a, a tough process. It's just like another cook in the kitchen that I'm not necessarily sure is needed every time.
0: Yeah, no, I would strongly agree with that. I mean, it's a little bit self-serving now that I'm on the investor <laughs> side of the table. You, yeah. know, you don't need to yeah. hire a bank to maximize value. We'll we'll give you a good valuation. But no, I, I totally agree with that from a very genuine perspective. Yeah. You mentioned values. So... Values is something that I'm very keen on thinking about culture and how do you be really intentional about that? So I think oftentimes first-time founders look back and they say, wow, there was a ton of cultural debt from this and this just because I didn't know. So I'm curious, were there any lessons learned in terms of thinking about values, thinking about building a culture and being really intentional about that?
1: Yes. So I think we did a lot of things right at TaskRabbit, but there's always room for improvement as well.
0: And feel free to talk about the right things as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the things that we did right were, one from the very, very beginning, you know, the time we were five people, 10 people, 20 people, we at least once a year in the early days would do a full team gathering and talk about mission, vision, values and recheck. Are these the same values that we had last year? You know, is this the same mission? Is this the same vision? And we do it all together as a team. And that was easy to do when we were under 20 people. As you grow in scale, that becomes harder and harder. But I think because we had established such a strong foundation around what we stood for, it really did attract the right people on the team because those new team members wanted to be a part of something that was bigger than them and that they felt was important. And so, you know, we did that right. And I think that just came from a very genuine place for that core team in the beginning. I think we also did a decent job. And of course, we can do more, but just around driving diversity of cultures of gender, of ethnicity across the team as well. And I think, you know, being a female technical founder and CEO in Silicon Valley gave me a unique perspective on that. And I was willing to work maybe a little bit harder to find team members that did bring cultural diversity in their views and perspectives and values as well. so I think that made for a really strong team. You know, the things that as I look back, I wish that I had done better is sometimes I felt like, you know, the culture that was created was very collaborative, very friendly, very familial and almost maybe too familial, too family oriented in that sometimes I felt like, are we working hard enough? Are we working fast enough? Are we a well-oiled machine? Are we a high performance team Or are we like this family that's like super happy about working together and changing the world and all those nice things. But like, sometimes I felt like the business case needed to be made in a way that resonated with more of a high performance culture rather than a familial culture. And so that was a tough balance because people really liked working together and really liked being a part and on this team. But sometimes it was really hard to like, drive the team to excellence, you know, because you're balancing sort of the sensitivity and that familial feel.
0: That's a really good point. Cause I think at the end of the day, it's really hard to tell one of your best friends to do something and say, you know, we need this in like the next 10 minutes. Right. So you mentioned my next question for me, which was just being a female technical founder here in the Bay. I was looking at the diversity report the other day. It's still less than 10% of VC funding goes to female founders. When you cut that by color, it's even worse. I think it's less than 2% goes like women of color. I mean, just in general, black or Latin Mm -hmm. backgrounds. So what are specific and actionable ways that that can change? Like what can I as an ally or even you do to really bridge that gap?
1: Yeah. I mean, one, I love that you use the word allies is because we need allies. And when I say we, I, you know, I'm talking about myself and sort of coming from my own experience I think that we're finally getting to a point in the conversation that it's not just women. It's not just people of color that are talking about this, that we do have allies and that we're, you know, banding together people, particularly, I think, in the upcoming generation for them, this is utmost importance. It's not just something that is brought up once in a while and not talked about. And so I think that's really important. I think that you can't be what you can't see. And so you need role models through the entire path of your career that are going to inspire you, that are going to motivate you and drive you. So what that means is if we want to have more female founders, more underrepresented minority founders, we have to make more of those founders successful. And to do that, we need to have more women and more underrepresented minorities writing checks into companies that resonate with them. Because companies that resonate with me are gonna be very different than companies that resonate with someone else, some other investor. I'm gonna find value, I'm gonna connect with founders in a different way than an investor that maybe has been running a fund for 20 plus years. And so we need to have more diversity in people that are making decisions around where the money goes. And then I think along the way, we need to just do everything we can to support and ensure that the companies that are getting funded, that are role models, continue to be successful. And so that might mean, you know, rolling up your sleeves a little bit more and helping extra and, you know, going that extra mile to make sure that they can continue their path. Startups are really hard, right? Like they're so fragile and they can fail at any given moment, any given second for reasons that don't even make sense. I mean, particularly being on the investing side now and really understanding more about the ecosystem and how decisions are made. I mean, some of it is so serendipitous. You don't have a lot of control as a founder on what happens, you know, to your company some of the time. And so as an investor, I think we need to do everything we can to be those allies and to just go the extra mile for those founders that we do fund that we feel like can be role models in the industry.
0: That's wonderful. And I think that's a good segue into the current chapter you're exploring as an investor. So I'd love to get some background there on Fuel Capital and what you're doing there.
1: Yeah. So Fuel is about six years old. Fuel was founded by my partner, Chris Howard, who spent some time at Ignition Partners up in Seattle, and he started their initial SEED program. Prior to that, he was in marketing and brand and advertising. And so we have very complementary backgrounds and skill sets. He's from the West Coast. I'm from the East Coast. And I grew up software engineer, math, computer science, and then spent 10 years as an operator with TaskRabbit. So Chris raised two funds on his own, a $25 million fund, a $45 million fund. And then I joined Fuel two years ago, and we raised a third fund together, which is a $75 million fund. We like to get involved when companies are raising that first institutional seed round of funding. It's generally these days kind of two to $3 million. We like to write in anywhere from a 750 k to a million dollar check. We'll look at all categories. We invest across consumer, across enterprise, across infrastructure. We're really focused on stage instead of category. And then Chris and I, you know, have such a nice overlap. I think he has an amazing track record on the infrastructure side. I have a lot of operational experience on the consumer side. But with my background in engineering, I can kind of look at the technical deals in a different way than he does. And he can look at the consumer deals in a different way than I do. So it's just the two of us. And we love working together. It's been a lot of fun being on the investing side. As I look back, my favorite time at TaskRabbit was when we were under 20 people and just kind of trying to figure things out. And so I get to relive that now over and over and over again throughout the fuel portfolio.
0: That's great. And then let's talk about competition. The seed market has never been hotter. There are a ton of really great seed funds out there, fuel included. So how do you think about differentiation?
1: Well, a couple different ways. So one, you know, one thing that I've learned in building my own company is that the people really matter. The people in the company matter and your investors really matter as people. I think people over brands matter. And so, you know, there really is no other seed fund that looks like Chris and I, right? An operator, an investor, a female, you know, and Chris, you know, coming from his experience at Ignition. And so we have a lot of shared values as well of how we wanna work with founders and how we show up for founders. We have sort of the saying that we're in your corner, not in your kitchen. And I think that kind of perfectly describes what Chris and I, because, you know, we're there to support our founders. We're often the first texts, you know, at 10 p.m. at night on a Sunday when, you know, they're prepping for a board meeting and want to run something by us. But otherwise, give them the space to operate, you know. And I, as a founder, worked with a bunch of different investors and, you know, to varying degrees had different experiences of how I like to work with my investors. And so... I think Chris and I, as people, really genuinely love what we do. We love working with founders, and we build a lot of trust with our founders and work very closely with them. So I think that's one, the people really matter. I think the second thing that we're finding, and I certainly found this at TaskRabbit, is from a tactical sort of service-level approach, one of the main things that can really help shape a company not only from a business model and go-to-market standpoint, but also from a cultural standpoint, are things focused around brand, around the mission, the vision, the values. What is the personality of the company and of the brand? And what customers are you going to market and are you attracting? And what team members are you attracting as well? And so we brought on Jamie Vigiano, who worked with me in marketing at TaskRabbit, to be Fuel CMO. And she works now directly with our portfolio in helping them you know, with their branding, their positioning, creating brand books early on, and their go-to-market strategies from a marketing perspective, storytelling. We find that's a really key differentiator that can make a difference to an early stage company. And so that's just a, a service level tactical area that we've decided we're going to double down on. Chris, of course, has this amazing background already in marketing and advertising, and I sort of lived that world for 10 years with Jamie. And so that's been a really, I think, strong addition to the team and a a real differentiator in what we can add at the early stage. And I think the third way that we've really differentiated is around focusing around our founders' health and wellness. So when we invest dollars into a company, we're not just investing the money, we're investing in the people. And we're not just writing that check, but we want to make sure that our founders are set up in a healthy, sustainable way to build their businesses. And again, this doesn't only affect them and their health, but it really sets a tone for the culture and people that they're going to attract to their companies. And so one of the key initiatives that we've launched for fuel is this concept called refuel, where we're doing events for founders, for entrepreneurs, for co-investors as well, you know, regularly that want to get together. And, you know, typically you have these, you know, dinners and networking opportunities that involve drinking and alcohol. And that's kind of like the normal thing, which is fine, which is great. But we wanted to kind of provide an offer a different way of bringing our community together that's a little bit more sustainable, that feels healthier, that's focused on founder health and wellness. And so we're holding our first Founder retreat in the fall, which we're really excited about. It's going to be an overnight retreat for our CEOs at Fuel, completely focused on health and wellness. I mean, I've been to some amazing investor-led retreats. First Round Capital does an incredible CEO summit, and they were investors in TaskRabbit, where you get incredible business advice, and you get to meet you know, entrepreneurs that are later stage and hear their stories. And so we feel like there are other firms that are providing that And we wanted to be able to provide something different. And so that's another area that we've doubled down on.
0: I really love that. That's fantastic. And I think there's this hustle mentality, right? That you have to work. I mean, the Chinese term is nine, nine, six. You're like nine to nine, six days a week. And that's just wholly unsustainable. And I can tell you that from being a former banker myself, right? (laughs) right? And yeah, I think that's a really wonderful perspective. I mean, everything that you said there just around differentiation. So brand, starting with brand, which was the second thing and what Jamie's working on, I mean, I would guess that oftentimes most seed founders are pretty product or engineering focused, yes. right? And nowadays, I mean, it's just so critical that, especially on the consumer side and increasingly enterprise side, that people are aligned and, and tied into the vision of the brand and setting that intention from day one, I think creates an entirely new level of authenticity and intention yes. that consumers really like.
1: It does. And, you know, it's not something that came natural to me as a founder. Because I was a technical founder as well. I was an engineer and I didn't realize the importance of brand, of storytelling, of what is the go-to-market and actually how that all ties together, not just for the business, but for your team and the culture that you're setting to. And so that was a huge lesson learned in the decade at TaskRabbit that we're now applying to our early stage companies.
0: That's great. And then right now, what are you focused on? Maybe talk about a recent investment you made and why.
1: Yes. Yeah, so we just are starting to deploy out of the third fund. So that's really exciting. We've done four deals out of there. One of them is this incredible female founder from the L.A. market. And it's a company called Stylerow, which is a SaaS marketplace business for designers. So she herself, her name is Erin, is a celebrity designer down in the LA market, mostly focused on architectural firms, hotels, more B2B and enterprise type design work. She's had an incredible career on her own 12 years in the design industry, but always felt like she wanted to start a tech company. And she had this software in her head this whole time that she finally just got built and she launched it. And we really love working with her because she has such an incredible perspective on the business and on the market. And she's been there in the trenches and she's lived it. And she's created a solution to a pain point that she has felt in her own life. So she is what we like to call purpose built for this particular opportunity. That's something we really look for in our founder's And so she's at Style Rose, one of the first deals that we have done out of the third fund. So we're excited about that.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I think one of the themes that's been really consistent within the podcast has been customer centricity and knowing your customer. There's no better way to know your customer than to literally be your customer, right? (laughs) That's right.
1: That's so true.
0: And then you also brought up another point there, which was she had it built right? So you were a technical founder, mm-hmm. you were able to hack together the first iteration. So now seeing on the seed side, maybe you've got a fantastically talented founder, but engineering isn't necessarily their strong suit. So how would you recommend them going about bridging that gap, finding a technical co-founder, bridging the technical know-how? That's pretty challenging.
1: It is. It is very challenging. I think it's probably one of the most challenging things because I meet entrepreneurs MBA students all the time that have incredible ideas but can't get them built, right? It's becoming easier and easier, though, I will say. We're starting to see software that's being built that's more of a WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get sort of platform, right? And so I think it's actually lowering the barrier for an entrepreneur to come in without a technical background and say, like, I can at least prototype something and test something and get something out there. So you're seeing a lot of sort of service-based platforms and developer shops, I think, being formed. So I think it's getting easier. I think the barriers being lowered, but it's hard. I mean, I, the thing that I would sort of advise against is going out and just, you know, finding a technical co-founder just because, you know, they're able to build what's in your head. I think co-founder relationships are like a marriage. And so being able to really be in the trenches with someone, you know, in a really authentic, deep way takes time and it takes, you know, having built an experience in a relationship together. And so I think you can always hire engineers, you can pay engineers with equity, you can get creative, right, about finding people to work with you. But I would say finding co-founders that you really want to create a long lasting relationship with is probably the hardest thing to do.
0: Yeah. I think it goes right back to values, right? If your co-founder is not there, also setting that same example, align with you on vision, being hyper intentional about culture in the same way that you are, then you're going to have a problem.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: So last part of the podcast here, centered on the title, pattern recognition. So curious, what are some consistent patterns you've seen across successful marketplace businesses?
1: I think it really goes back to the focus on supply and choosing one side of the marketplace that is going to be, how do I word this? Because it's not that it's the most important, but it might be the most dominant to making the business work. And so for us, it was the supply side. It was the taskers, which can seem counterintuitive because they're not the ones that are paying you money. Yeah. Right? So I think in any marketplace business, you've got to really understand your supply and demand and really understand who you're building for. And that may not always be who is paying you money.
0: Yeah, I love that. And just for consistent patterns across the podcast itself. So Justin Kahn, founder of Twitch recently was on and he was talking about, you know, before when we were dumb and young, we would focus on all the viewers and we realized the supplier, the content provider is really what differentiated Twitch. Right. And then Jack Conte, the founder of Patreon, which is a donor platform said, you know, even though the donors are paying us money, it's about really helping the content creator thrive. Right. So building the supply side. Yeah. So then I don't really like using the term growth hack, but- if you were to use that term and think about supply side initially, were there any sort of like step function-esque campaigns that help you grow that supply side?
1: There were. I mean, I think the unique maybe experience we had at TaskRabbit is there was a never-ending amount of people that wanted to make money on the platform. We would get 15,000 applications a month and at our best at the time, we could pick 3,000. That was the most we could process to keep the supply quality high enough. You know, we had this initiative one time I remember called Task TaskRabbit 3000, where it's like we are going to onboard 3000 taskers this month and we've got to automate a bunch of stuff and we've got to just make it work to scale. But prior to that, we we're onboarding under a thousand. And so it took a lot of automation. It took a lot of technology to be built. It took things like how do we natural language process an application, an open ended application, and then use NLP to determine If this tasker is going to be a good communicator and in turn, be a good, provide a high quality experience as well, because communication was really, really key in the tasker community of providing a great experience. So we had to get really creative and clever and smart about how to automate that. But that TaskRabbit 3000 initiative was a huge step function change for us.
0: And so then as you think about your own personal decision making, are there any mental models or patterns that you follow?
1: This may not answer the question, but I'm a balance of analytics and then I'm very comfortable trusting my own gut instincts. I'd say I'm 80% analytics and that last 20%, I'll just go on gut. And I think that served me well. And so I think my pattern is, is that I've been able to trust myself enough to trust my instinctual views on things But because of my engineering analytical background, I do like to get as much data as possible.
0: Yeah, it's funny. It's coming from an engineering background myself. You get so used, especially the way we're taught, is there's a silver bullet answer, right? And life and business is very not binary, right? Right. And you have a lack of information. There's total asymmetry. And you have to go off your gut for that last 20%. I think depending on how lucky you are or how good your gut is, that's really the separator. Yes. So then last question here, which is around content. So favorite book, movie, show, any sort of content you've consumed recently? Why has it changed your perspective?
1: Well, something that actually was incredibly pivotal to me in deciding to take the leap and start this company is a book that Jessica Livingston wrote like 10 years ago. But I still refer back to this book all the time called Founders at Work. And I was working at IBM in Boston, didn't know another entrepreneur. Like, was not surrounded by entrepreneurship. But I read this book and I had the idea for TaskRabbit and it made me realize that there were other people out there in this world that, you know, were doing things that at the time I could only dream about. And I loved her interviews and they were, they're really, you know, intimate and transparent And it's just a book that has stuck with me and I've gone back and I've read chapters in it from time to time. And so for anyone out there that is like thinking about entrepreneurship, but isn't sure, and maybe feels a little bit alone, like, am I the only one thinking about this? I think that's an excellent read.
0: That's great. Thank you for sharing that Leah. And thanks for joining the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Once again, a big thank you to Leah for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, I would love if you gave a quick rating and review as well as sent any feedback or guest recommendations my way. You can also check out show notes and more on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com and reach me on Twitter at John Heasy, That's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y or on Instagram at John G-H-U. That's J-O-H-N-G-H-U. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.